Hey mamas, I'm Alyssa, registered dietitian, picky eating specialist, and mama of two. You're listening to the Nutrition for Littles podcast, aimed at helping you raise healthy, independent eaters. Each week, we will tackle topics like picky eating, mealtime struggles, baby led weaning, and so much more. Let's jump right into today's topic. Hey there, you guys, and welcome back. Today's episode, I am diving deep into a topic that I didn't know needed to be talked about. (laughs) I mean, I did, but I figured a lot of us knew this kind of stuff, but recently I did a post on my Instagram stories. Anyways, we'll get into this, and so many people had questions, and I thought, you know what? I should probably do a podcast episode on this. So today we are talking all about the sexy, the cool, the amazingly interesting topic of food safety right? You knew I was going to say that because you saw the title. I'm sure you already knew, but it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not super interesting, but it is extremely necessary to discuss and talk about and uh, have a conversation. So at the top of this podcast, I, uh, by the way, there's a disclaimer on all of my podcasts. This is informational use only. Use your best judgment. Talk with a pediatrician. Get informed. Um, The FDA has a ton of information about food safety, what to do, what not to do, what to avoid, what to try. There are so many tips and tricks that I could fill an entire day's worth of podcasts with tips and tricks and you know, little like tidbits of information that you may not have known. So I'm going to hit kind of the basics, some of the stuff that I feel like people should know, but don't seem to know, um, and kind of talk about this. So for those of you who don't know, dietitians have to go through, at least in the U.S., have to go through ServeSafe, which is like an entire uh, certification around food safety and food handling. A lot of people think dietitians are in the kitchen. We're actually not. Like A lot of us are actually not in the kitchen. A lot of us aren't even cooks or interested in handling food, but it's part of our training to be able to handle, manage all the things in a kitchen. So although it is a section or a part of what we do, and you may find some dietitians in the food service industry, most of us are not. But that being said, it is part of our education. And man, was my like class on this. So eye-opening. There was a lot of things I didn't know, a lot of things I learned, or a lot of things that I thought were true that wasn't, or practices that I did because my mom did them, but I didn't really understand why. And I think that's going to be the best part of this episode is it's not going to be like, do X, Y, Z, one, two, three, although I'll get into that a little bit. It's more so getting us thinking critically about a situation we might be encountering with food and how to best handle it. Because just like my episode on choking, it's not so much like a list of foods that you need to pay attention to. Although you can kind of do that, it's more so the qualities, like what's happening with that type of food. And I hate to give a list of choking hazards because anything that we put in our mouth is a choking hazard, right? And there are certain foods that are at higher risk of choking than others. Same to be said about foodborne illnesses. Foodborne illnesses can be found on any food. Okay. Let me repeat that. Any food can contain a foodborne illness that makes us sick. So some foods are at higher risk than others, depending on the year and the way that the food is processed and handled and packaged and shipped and all these things might increase or decrease the risk for foodborne illness to be present on that food. And really what I'm saying here is that food contains bacteria. 
It does. And no matter how much washing or anything that you do to foods, it will contain bacteria. The point here is, is that if it has more bad bacteria than good bacteria, or there's a large amount of bad bacteria that can take over our gut and make us sick, that's where the concern comes from. So I don't know. I feel like a lot of people have these lists of foods in their mind that they're like, these are bad foods. These are scary foods. These foods like need extra attention and all the other foods are totally, completely safe. Totally false. All foods can lead to foodborne illness. So why is this important? Because we don't want to get sick. <laughs> because we don't want to get sick because we want to be uh, healthy individuals, have a healthy gut microbiome. And part of that is not disrupting the good to bad bacteria ratio in our belly. So we don't want to get sick and even some foodborne illnesses can be fatal. So we really want to pay attention to some of these things. I'm not here to scare you or freak you out because most of them are not, um, but there are some instances that it can become fatal. So we do just want to kind of have some general guidelines here. So the first thing I want to talk to you about are just some considerations around food safety. So we want to think about like the real life food safety. So I've kind of already covered the fact that any single food out there, like I don't know if you guys remember a while ago, it was romaine lettuce and then cantaloupe and oh gosh, spinach was one as well that we've seen that have contained foodborne illness. And we're all like, wait, I thought that was triple washed. I, I thought that had a peel. What the heck? How is this causing foodborne illnesses? And that's because it can live, grow, thrive on practically every food. So we just want to be mindful of that and consider that every single food needs to be cleaned and prepared in a safe way. So some of the risk factors for, and this is kind of like just broad spectrum uh, considerations or uh, attributes that foods have that make them a little higher risk might be that they have a high surface area. So a lot of times why deli meat can be a little bit higher risk is because the surface area of the deli meat meets the deli meat cutter <laughs> across the entire plane of meat versus like a piece of steak has a relatively smaller surface area of what we're consuming um, like in the middle, it hasn't been touched by anything. So it's a lot harder to get any sort of bacteria in the middle of the steak. It's the external and then we cook it and then we eat it. So it kills off typically any of the bacteria. Now with something like deli meat or ground meat, you start to have a bigger surface area and then it gets ground into the middle and we're not able to necessarily to cook that all the way or sometimes we don't cook it all the way, which could lead to bacteria overgrowth. So we kind of want to think of this idea of surface area. The more surface area that we're consuming, the higher the risk, generally speaking, especially with things like meats. So I hope you understand the difference there between like a ground burger surface area and a piece of steak surface area because the piece of steak isn't ground up. So the middle has been untouched. So it hasn't created that surface area. I hope this is making sense for you. But so we can kind of think of surface area. The other thing we can kind of think of is any sort of ribs or notches or places where bacteria can easily slip into and get stuck and not be easily washed off. So like my example before, cantaloupe has a lot of ridges and it's very bumpy on the outside of the cantaloupe, right? The peel. That's because bacteria can sit in those little grooves and it may not really remove by like a rinse by the that the farmer does. A lot of times our farmers will rinse the food before they package it and ship it off. Sometimes even the grocery stores do before they put it on their shelf. So just keep that in mind that things with bumps, grooves, notches can contain and harbor bacteria a little bit 
easier. So with a cantaloupe, we'd want to rinse the outside with like a scrub brush, like actually kind of scrub at it to make sure we're removing any of that bacteria. Now, some of you may be thinking why you're not eating the peel, but this is a hot tip that I mentioned the other day in my Instagram that people didn't uh, fully get is because when we're cutting a cantaloupe, we're taking the knife, putting it on the external part of the peel, then basically pushing or slicing through that peel and pushing into the flesh of the fruit. And we're going to be eating the flesh of the fruit. So you're essentially transferring any bacteria that's on the peel and pushing it into the part of the fruit we're going to eat. So that's why we still want to rinse foods that we're going to be eating um, even after we peel it. So avocados, oranges, um, cantaloupes, melons, a lot of those things, all we should be rinsing them if we can and uh, giving it a nice little scrub, especially if they have those notches or nodules or things like that. So that's something to consider as well for foodborne illnesses. Now, just as a general rule, meat is a little bit higher risk for foodborne illnesses to begin with. So we want to make sure we're cooking our meat thoroughly. There are temperature guides that you can follow to make sure the internal temperature is correct when you're cooking it so that it kills off that bacteria. So bacteria is what's causing the foodborne illness and bacteria doesn't survive well or thrive well in super hot temperatures or super cold temperatures. They thrive and they multiply and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and grow in that kind of room temperature-esque area. So they still grow in cold temperatures and hot temperatures, but just way more slowly or they're killed off. So that kind of, if you're American, 40 degrees Fahrenheit to 140 degrees Fahrenheit is where you'll find that bacteria rapidly grows. So leaving your food out on the counter overnight is where that bacteria is going to grow faster and become more of a risk. I'm not saying you can't eat a slice of pizza that was out overnight and not feel anything in your belly, but I wouldn't recommend it. Some people have stronger stomachs than others, meaning that some of us have a better balance of good to bad bacteria in our belly, which may keep us from getting sick. Our gut is like stop one for our immunity. So keeping that really strong is really important. And when we're delegating our body to focus on the bad bacteria and eliminating it or overcoming it in our belly, it does kind of bring us down on the immunity kind of spectrum for a period of time until we can bounce back. We may not even notice that's happening. We may feel a little queasy, a little sick, or we might get completely and totally sick and ill. So that's kind of what we're looking for there. Now, the point of food safety isn't to freak out about all food and super scrub it and give it a nice lather and use like I don't know, fruit and vegetable wash and things like that and to totally overcook our burgers. But it's thinking about the mitigation. How can we mitigate the risk? Food is a risk and it always will be, whether it's choking or whether it's food safety, but it's a necessary risk because we also need it to survive. So even if you're thinking, I'll just live off packaged foods all the time, those can actually cause or have foodborne illnesses in them as well. So don't go there. Don't go to a place of fear. All we need to think about is how can we mitigate the risk? And there's really two big ways we can do that. Number one is personal hygiene. I cannot stress this enough. The number one reason, this is so gross. I'm sorry if you're eating, but the number one reason why people get sick from foodborne illnesses 
is because people go to the bathroom and then handle food without washing their hands or without washing their hands effectively and it transfers and makes us sick, whether that's at a restaurant, at a friend's house, at a church potluck, or by doing it yourself, or having, you know, maybe little toddler hands getting in there and helping you with the dough, all those sorts of things. That's the number one thing we can do is wash your hands. Now to appropriately wash your hands, we want to sing happy birthday or the ABCs, lather up some soap, use warm water, not cold water, warm water, and um, get the backs of our hands in between our fingers, our palms, and um, underneath our nails. I kind of like always do like a little kind of scratching motion in my palm to get kind of underneath our nails as well. We want to try to keep our nails clean as often as possible, especially right before we handle food. So even if you think your hands are clean, wash them. Trust me, this is an important, important step. And I think we've all learned that in the last year, but just a quick reminder. The second way we can mitigate our risk is by preparing and storing the food in a safe way. So I kind of already touched on this idea of the temperature danger zone, which is the 40 degrees to 140 degrees is where that bacteria really thrives. So we don't want to keep food in that temperature zone for too long. So two hours is a good rule of thumb. And then you need to be putting that either in the fridge or the freezer or heating it back up. So whatever that looks like, keeping it out of that room temperature zone for as long as possible. Now, some foods are more at risk than others in that temperature zone, but that's beyond the point. We're not going to get too crazy in here because you can search the FDA website and find all this information if you really want to go deep with it. But that's a good general rule of them. The second tip I have for you here is cross-contamination. This one I see all the time and it literally pains me. So cross-contamination is when you take one situation that's a little higher risk, and then you accidentally or unknowingly cross-contaminate another work area in the kitchen. So hypothetically, let's say we're cutting raw chicken with a knife, and then we take that knife and we use it to cut our salad up for the day. We've just taken raw chicken and now put it on our raw salad, or even a vegetable that's just not going to be heated up enough to cook off the raw chicken bits if you get my drift. So cross-contamination, switching knives, using the same cutting board, um, maybe the same tongs without washing them in between, all those things lead to cross-contamination. So we need to keep our work surfaces separate, especially when we're working with raw meat. So what I like to do is keep different color-coded cutting boards. So I know the yellow one is for chicken. The green one is for vegetables, yada, yada, yada. Or you can do this with your knives as well. Um, And make sure that you're not using a wooden cutting board or something that's porous to cut things like raw meat. If it's porous like wood, um, it can actually absorb those like meat juices in the bacteria from the raw meat and transfer it later because it really can't be cleaned quite as well as something that's um, not porous like glass or uh, plastic, like a, a tough plastic or metal or you know any of those sorts of substances. Uh, granite, that's a great one too. So just a reminder there for cross-contamination is super important. Another one that I see people uh, violating a lot is thawing out meat. A lot of times we were growing up with the idea of just taking chicken out of the freezer, put it on the countertop all day, or put it in the sink. And best practices here is to keep it out of that that danger zone by putting it in the fridge to thaw. 
hopefully overnight. And if you can't do that, you can run some warm water over it and then microwave it to a thought. We want to keep it out of that danger zone as often as we can. And we also don't want to um, continually, continuously change the temperature. So every time it goes into that danger zone, it's a risk. So if we take it from frozen to thawing to cooking back to fridge back to out on room temperature back to frozen that's multiple times that we're changing in and out of that uh, danger zone which can increase the risk for uh, contamination another one that i see people violating a lot is eating directly out of a container and then putting it back in the fridge so our mouth is full of bacteria and a lot of that is good bacteria not all of it but a lot of it is good but too much of a good thing can also cause a problem. So when we eat, let's say, for example, a baby, we feed them directly from a baby jar of food. They're done. We put the cat back on the jar of food and put it back in the fridge, then bring it out 24 hours later and feed them from that same jar of food. Like I said, being put in the fridge doesn't stop the growth of bacteria. It just slows it down. So now it's had 24 hours to multiply and to replicate and to grow. And now we're feeding baby from a baby food jar that had bacteria put into it and has had time to grow. So that's something we wouldn't want to do even for adults because it does risk growth of bacteria. So pre-portion your foods out of a larger container to eat for the dinner time. Like a lot of people eat directly from the ice cream container and same thing. So you want to pre-portion it into a bowl. All right. So now that we have that, the next one that is by far my top pet peeve that I see is fridge organization. I actually hate the way that fridges are set up typically, at least in the US, where produce is on the bottom and then the shelves are on top. That's how my fridge is because you should have the raw most quote unquote, dangerous food at the bottom of your fridge. So that if anything drips, leaks, whatever, it's not going on to like a salad that you're going to consume raw. So you want to have your most dangerous food at the bottom, the food that you're going to eat completely raw at the top and everything else kind of in between. I like to put any meat that I'm defrosting into a container that then goes inside my fridge. So any juices or anything like that is totally and completely contained saves me so much time in cleaning out my fridge when something goes awry. So anything you're going to be eating without cooking it for cooking it first or putting it in the freezer or, you know, changing the temperature, you want that at the top because then there's least risk of it getting cross contaminated. Okay. So that is my biggest pet peeve. Now I want to talk a little bit about who is at risk for foodborne illnesses. A- all of us. So just like I said, everyone has different immunity. Everyone has a different gut gut microbiome, but there are certain populations that are at higher risk with foodborne illnesses. So even if you and I eat the exact same food that has the same amount of bacteria, one of us gets sick and one of us doesn't, that's because our own immunity is different. But there are people who are immunocompromised or have a worse immune system just by default. And those people are babies under the age of 12 months, their immune system isn't quite top tier. All right. So it takes time to build up that immunity, get used to life here on earth and get exposed to different things in small ways so they can build up that immunity. The next one is the elderly. Just as we age, uh, we become more immunocompromised. 
pregnant women are at a higher risk for developing foodborne illnesses. Anyone with an autoimmune disorder or disease are at higher risk. And then anyone who's immunocompromised for any sort of illness reason, like HIV, AIDS, uh, liver transplant or any (laughs) transplant patient, cancer patient, uh, any of those people are at higher risk. So you just want to be a little bit more stringent with your safety practices. Wash your hands for a little bit longer, wash your fruits, vegetables, foods a little bit longer, um, and under running water, all those sorts of things are ways that we can mitigate that risk. Okay, so I feel like I've covered my bases. We're going a little long, but I just want to leave you with this. All food is a risk. So all we can do is mitigate it. I had recently, I'm going to tell you about my Instagram post. I recently posted this TikTok viral reel that someone had taken a whole egg, froze it in the freezer overnight, the next morning peeled it, then sliced it into small slices and then fried those small slices on a pan. And I thought it was so cool. But yes, this is higher risk. So an egg, a raw egg, has risks of being potentially uh, carrying foodborne illness or higher chances of bacteria, especially if you are not cooking it before you cut it up, yada, yada, yada. So we all know that raw eggs contain some risk. Now in the U.S., most if not all of our eggs on the shelf at grocery stores are pasteurized, which which means that they go through a light heating process, not so much to heat or cook the egg, but enough to kill off extra bacteria. They also are washed and put on the fridge. That's why our eggs are refrigerated in the U.S. The U.K., this isn't the case. They're totally raw, usually not pasteurized and not refrigerated or even sometimes washed. So depending on where you live, your eggs may be handled differently. You'll you'll read about it on the box if it's pasteurized. Same thing with our juices and our milk and yada, yada, yada. All of this is to mitigate the risk of foodborne illness. So that being said, in my circumstance, everyone was like, whoa, I thought you weren't supposed to eat frozen eggs. I thought you weren't supposed to freeze eggs whole. And yes, that's true. The FDA doesn't recommend it. But does that mean I can't do it? No, no one's in my home double checking my work, right? I'm in charge of mitigating my own risk. So I did that by following the rules I gave you here. I didn't cross-contaminate. I was very hygienic about the way I handled the egg. I put it in a Ziploc bag so the bacteria for when it cracked didn't get all over my freezer. And even if it did get in the egg, I knew I had to cook that egg really well. So a runny egg typically for children above the age of 12 months isn't super risky to have it be like kind of jammy and not fully cooked. But when it's coming from the freezer, we have to think about this a little bit. This is the critical thinking. It is coming from frozen to cooked immediately, which means the middle of the egg, the now we're talking kind of like not the surface area that's touching the pan, but in the middle, isn't getting heated up as quickly, right? So if we were to take a frozen egg versus a raw egg, that middle of the egg is going to increase in temperature faster coming from room temperature or coming from the fridge than it is from the freezer, right? That makes sense. So the middle of that frozen fried egg, if I don't cook it all the way where it's like super well done, then that middle is in that that danger zone, right? Of the temperature. So we just need to kind of think through this and go, okay, It's different than a fridge egg or a room temperature egg because it's not going to heat up at the same rate as it would uh, frozen versus room temperature. So I know, therefore, that I had to cook it really well. I couldn't leave it runny 
because it's it's not on the same trajectory. I hope that's making sense because I know that was a big question that I got about that experience. And at the end of the day, you guys, food is fun and mostly safe, especially when we're following these guidelines. And you have to decide what's a risk you're willing to take. Because honestly, the worst thing that could have happened is we got a little sick for a few days and it would have totally stunk. Don't get me wrong, but we would have been okay. Now, I wouldn't take the risk of eating like raw pork or raw shellfish because that is extremely dangerous and could actually lead to death. So not worth it in my opinion, right? So it's all about mitigating our risk, knowing that there's a risk and still living outside of fear around food. I don't want you cooking your burgers well done because you're so afraid of a foodborne illness might be in there. Now, I wouldn't also eat it like bloody or, you know, rare, but that's not a risk I'd be willing to take. But I know a lot of people would. So it's really about your personal preferences, what you enjoy, how you know to like mitigate the risk the best that you can. We do the best we can. We live outside of fear and uh, we pay attention to things that matter and really uh, critically think about what's going on in our kitchen, what's going on with us, our personal hygiene, what's going on with this food, what makes this food more high risk, more low risk, how we can mitigate the risk, and then we enjoy it, right? Now, there's so much more information I can give you here because truly this is like freaking Pandora's box. Like I said, I had an entire course on this for an entire semester dedicated to this one topic and then a huge long exam about it that I had to pass. So there's a lot to unpack here. I don't want you to think you have all the information after this episode, but I do want to encourage you to think through what's going on, how you can mitigate your risk and what makes foods more susceptible or less susceptible. So things like leftovers, we don't want to let those linger in our fridge for a long period of time, because even if we're sleeping, that bacteria is multiplying. So over time, it is going to start to um, go into that more high risk criteria. We don't want to be sick, right? Like even if that's the worst that can happen is we're just vomiting for a while, it's still not pleasant. And like I said, it's not good overall for our immunity, which uh, first defense is our gut. So anyways, I hope this podcast episode was helpful for you. I'm sorry it went a little long, but I had a lot to cover. (laughs) So if you have any questions, like follow-up questions about this, come DM me and let's have a fun conversation on Instagram about it because I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to this. And I do have a few things that like totally pet peeve me out, but then other things people are like, that doesn't bother you. And I'm like, no, it doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) So it's really just all about embracing and living in the gray. It's not black and white. It's not right or wrong. It's not perfect. I mean, there are some hard and fast rules, but other than that, a lot of it is just critically thinking about what's going on, what the food's like, where it came from, how it's packaged, how much you know risk there is, and how you can personally mitigate it and what you feel comfortable with. That being said, I'm going to jump off. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> it's over. I hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you're walking away with some tangible ways to bring peace to your mealtimes. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and tell all your mom friends. And as always, the best compliment you can give me is leaving a rating and written review, which also helps other mamas like you find this podcast too. You can find more from me on Instagram at Nutrition for Littles. Do you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast? Email me at Alyssa at NutritionForLittles.com. All right. Until next time, mamas.